Introducing Pretty Girls Pretty Who Girls Love, Real, love estate. Real Estate. Stories of everyday women breaking barriers and building wealth through real estate. Boss. B-O-S-S. Hello, hello. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Pretty Girls Love Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Washington, and I got a super special guest in the building today, Dr. Gina Merritt. She is the founder of Northern Real Estate Urban Ventures, the founder of Project Community Capital, and she's basically like one of the goats in the real estate industry. So I'm really excited to have her on today. Uh, Dr. Gina, how are you? I am wonderful on this beautiful and sunny day. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for taking your time, you know, after your vacation, um, you know, and you're a highly sought after woman. You're, you know, every, you know, every time I turn around, you're getting awarded. I see you, you know, getting some type of recognition. So I'm glad that you took a moment for this little show to share your stories. So oh, you- I appreciate you. You know, anything for you. Absolutely anything for you. Appreciate it. So uh, let's jump right into this because I know we got a lot to talk about. So first off, how did you even get interested in real estate? So that's an interesting story. Uh, real estate found me, <laughs> actually. Uh, from the time I was eight until the time I was 15, I would have a dream, I guess I would call it a nightmare, really, uh, two, three times a week, a bulldozer would chase me. Sometimes it would scoop me up. Other times it wouldn't. But, you know, I'd wake up like in tears, trembling, frightened. Um, But really, I wound up in this space really in a circuitous way. Starting from that dream, I actually wound up in psychology, or at least I applied to undergraduate uh, for psychology, which makes sense. Obviously, something was wrong with me. Having <laughs> <laughs> that dream multiple times a night, right? So I went for psychology. Mm-hmm. And then during the summer, right before I went to college, um, I worked for my dad at the electric company doing data entry. And so then I fell in love with computers. Mm-hmm. And so I called Howard University and I said, well, I don't want to do psychology anymore. I want to do MIS. They told me I had to reapply to school. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's a thing. So I had to reapply in, uh, for the business school. So I did a business minor and an MIS essentially major, and then um, then wound up going to back to work for the electric company and then to Wall Street, um, then to business school, uh, and then wound up with this job in real estate. Um, really, because I knew I didn't want to work on Wall Street anymore, and I knew I didn't work and didn't want to work in IT, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so. Um, so I wound up with this job. And then, you know, honestly, I, I got to the I, when I started work, I got to the job site the first day of work. They said, you know, go visit your site. I went to the job site, 12 acres of land, just dirt and a bulldozer. And that bulldozer. <laughs> so I started crying and trembling for good this time. Like, oh, that's why you were chasing me my whole life, because this is what I was supposed to be doing. So mm-hmm. that's really, really how I got into real estate. It, I, it, I, you know, it was meant to be. Wow. You were basically having a premonition. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, freakish. When I tell people that story, it's hard to believe, but it is the absolute truth. Okay. So this is really your calling. So exactly. you said you worked on wall street um, prior to really jumping into real estate. And a lot of people it seems like take that track. So how was your experience working on wall street? I loved it. Um, it really is truly a meritocracy. Um, they hire you because of your capabilities, your mm-hmm. intelligence, 
Um, they really don't pay attention to a gender or race, at least in my experience. I mean, I was in my uh, mid-20s when I worked on Wall Street, and it was really the best time. It's, it's really the, the best job for someone who um, is smart and maybe doesn't know it yet. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think being a person of color, certainly in uh, in my high school experience and my even my college experience, I went to Howard, right? I mean, it's just, you know, beautiful and smart Black people. It's still sort of hard to believe, you know, maybe it's, um, what do you call that syndrome? Um, Stockholm? No, 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 no. The other <laughs> one, imposter, right? Like, like oh, you, yeah. belong, you don't believe that you belong. Mm -hmm. And then you go to Wall Street and, you know, they treat you like they treat everyone. I had a lot of responsibility there. I had a group of people that worked for me. Uh, I remember one gentleman was twice my age and, and none of that mattered, right? It was really that you were smart enough to do the job and that's why they hired you. Mm -hmm. And so it really uh, boosted my confidence, you know, in terms of being a business person that I could that I could work for Morgan Stanley, mm -hmm. uh, do well and be treated as, as equal. Okay, so yeah. one- one high pressure, high stakes industry to another, but real estate is very much so, especially up in New York area is very much so like uh, nepotism. Like well, it's all about who, you know, your well, relationships matter. So tell me about why you transition and why real estate development of all things. Well, so, you know, when I went to business school um, and that's where I got into real estate, right? That's where I applied for a job with my first real estate company, which was a Clark affiliated organization. Um, the truth is I knew I didn't want to go back to New York just for those reasons, right? I mean, it's very expensive. I thought at some point I'm going to settle down and, um, you know, have a family and New York is really fast paced and expensive and is probably not appropriate. I also thought about, although I love Wall Street and I, I really love Wall Street now because they're investing in my projects. Mm -hmm. I graduated from business school. I just didn't feel like it was a match for me to work in for the rest of my days. I wanted something uh, much more fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And so I wound up transitioning purely because of, of business school, uh, because this opportunity again found me. That, that I, I was looking through the jobs and it was like construction manager and I wound up applying and it wound up actually being development manager for a six person shop. So mm -hmm. it allowed me to use the skills, the strengths that I thought I had, which was, um, I was a very independent thinker and worker, mm -hmm. and I knew Wall Street, you know, when you work for Wall Street or a consulting company, which most of my peers went to after business school, you really just, uh, I hate to say it, a body on a transaction. Like you're one of many analysts, right? Mm -hmm. And and the senior folks then, you know, decide which analysts they want on their projects. I was so used to already being in charge, right? Working with a, a group of people who who I was responsible for. Mm -hmm. Then actually the way I grew up, I was uh, raising my siblings at 13 years old when my mother passed away. So I had this sort of innate, hyper-responsible personality and needed to be in charge of my own destiny. <laughs> and real estate allows you to do that. Yep. I mean, you know, you work on one project, it's like its own business, mm -hmm. um, right? It has all of the sort of um, components of business school, like accounting, marketing, um, economics, operations, you know, even organizational behavior, because yep. all the people you got to deal with and manage. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it was kind of a perfect fit. I could uh, run a real estate project, which was like running my own business and apply all of the things that I learned in business school. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that just happened to work exceptionally well. 
and you know also being able to work in communities like where I grew up mm -hmm. all of that you know helped me decide and uh pursue this real estate opportunity once it presented itself I knew it was the thing for me awesome so it's a big difference between when you're working for someone else and it's their name and reputation than when you decide, all right, I want to go out on my own and I want to be the boss. I want to be the person who's the lead developer and it's my name, my reputation, my guarantee on the line. <laughs> so tell me about what made you want to like take that transition or was there any specific project where you were like, all right, now it's time for me to go out on my own. Well, it's interesting. That's a, a interesting story. Also, I was living in California with my now ex-husband. Uh, I really had a great job with a black uh, development company. Mm -hmm. um, I had an apartment on the beach in Marina Del Rey. I had an apartment in Oakland. I had my first BMW and car mm -hmm. allowance. Girl, I was living the life, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't need to be in business for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, But my um, ex-husband had graduated from a business school at Berkeley and was having challenges finding an opportunity that that fit him um, and his capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so he basically convinced me uh, as I was having a baby um, to go and go into business together. So that's really where I started. It was just like him saying, I'm not finding what I want. Why don't we do this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, like an idiot. Uh, I mean, you know, obviously supportive <laughs> right, exactly. There you go. Um, I did it and it was very, very painful. We started in the space where we were helping um, local community organizations work on development projects, representing their interests against the big, bad developers. Mm -hmm. You know, I had already been working for developers on the East Coast, a majority company, right? One of the Clark organizations, Clark Realty Capital, then going to the West Coast and working for a Black developer. Um you know, I, I had the experience, you know, the the capability to do this work. And I just figured, why not bring these technical skills to community organizations? Because there was a lack of that um, technical expertise, mm -hmm. um, you know, at, at a grassroots level. So we went and did that kind of work, you know, didn't really pay anything. You know, it was like we were struggling, you know, to keep our business afloat. And then an, uh, a nonprofit on the East Coast asked us to participate or chase an RFP with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had chased many RFPs, you know, on both sides as being the, you know, developer for the majority company and then just a consultant, just, you know, people asking me to, to jump in with them. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you always say yes. <laughs> At least in the early days, you always say yes. There's right. a difference now. Now I don't say yes anymore, necessarily, depending who the partner is. But I said yes, and we won. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do now? Right? <laughs> now we actually got to do the project. <laughs> and this project was in Annapolis. So I packed up my little baby and went to the East Coast. My ex stayed in California. Okay, that's why he's an ex. Mm -hmm. But I went to um, uh, the East Coast and, and started working on this project on my own. Also very challenging, right? Because I'm working on this project and I'm taking care of a little baby. Mm -hmm. And so at some point I actually had to stop doing that uh, work full time, um, I had to, because one year we, we missed the tax credits. We did not win the, um, that year that we applied the first year, only projects under 30 units won. They, you know, they made the, our, uh, the QAP uh, in Maryland, they made it so that small projects would win because it was hard for them to be um, competitive. Right. So we wound up getting credits the next year, but you know, but I didn't have any other income coming in and it was hard to get consulting work. It was hard to do the business development because, you know, 
you know, as a single mom, I'm, I got to be home taking care of my kid and not in the street doing deals like, like the men are able to do. So I wound up having to go back to work. Mm -hmm. I worked for Striever Brothers for about nine months. I worked for uh, NBC actually for about eight months. Um, I did a lot of good work there. The first institutional equity deal uh, for Striever Brothers. In fact, the equity investor wanted to put me in as a key man. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to uh, NBC and I did their first tax credit deal. Uh, the Georgia Avenue residences. I structured that deal. I won the financing through the uh, DHED uh, RFP process, mm -hmm. and um, and I got I got both organizations lots of wins. Um, and then while I was at NDC, there was an opportunity to help a nonprofit again in DC. They had ten projects and they didn't have a high level of development expertise. So I wound up with that contract. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I took off again and then never looked back. So I had to get two full-time jobs to take care of my child, which I mm -hmm. absolutely do not regret because my child is a rock star. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I wound up investing in her instead of investing in real estate projects. Right. right. I wound up being a consultant for a long time. And then honestly, post George Floyd, um, people were looking for opportunities uh, to create social impact. Uh, and social justice for for uh, black business owners, and so now a lot lots of investors and lenders want to invest in my projects. And now that my daughter's graduated from college, I actually do have the opportunity to invest my own money mm -hmm. and to take development risk, which you know before she graduated from college, I just wasn't willing to do. Right. Um, I wasn't willing to do. And then, you know, oddly enough, there were a couple of deals that would come across my desk and I would send them to lenders and investors and ask them to invest in it. And there were all kinds of reasons why that I could not. They kept saying, oh, yes, we have capital for minority developers. And I would apply and I would get rejected. Right. So, you know, I, like... I, I hate the word access to capital because it doesn't mean anything. Right. It doesn't mean anything if they don't approve it. Right. Mm -hmm. don't secure it. So access to capital is is just, a you know, I, the term doesn't mean anything in my book. So when I talk to people about capital, I'm like, you know, what are we going to do to help black de developers and business owners secure capital? Cause that's right. what it's about. But now that people want to invest in me, you know, it's, it's, it's great because, you know, I have 22 years of experience. How many black women have 22 years of experience on their own uh, developing real estate, um, and then even more so affordable housing. There's, there are very few uh, Black female, you know, developers, again, overall, but especially in affordable housing, right, which is a very um, sort of a technical field mm -hmm. in terms of how you structure, you know, transactions with public financing options. So, um, yeah, I mean, it took a long time to get to this place. Um, and I'm not complaining because I invested in the right thing at the right time. And mm -hmm. now is the time that I can, you know, acquire projects and redevelop them and do those things for my own account. And right now I have about $300 million in my pipeline. Ooh. Well, yeah, like you said, now the floodgates are open. Like <laughs> it's not that many people that fit the criteria like you, you're black, you're a woman, you got 22 years of experience. You got a track record of proven, you know, deals. So now everybody's wants to give you money. <laughs> I said I want the money. Thank yes. you. I, so, am, I feel grateful. 
So that makes a good segue to the Wells Fargo program that you're in um, through Capital Impact Partners. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, that's also an amazing program. Um, the Wells Fargo program essentially invests in developers at an enterprise level. Mm -hmm. And so the funding that they provide us is not for a project. You know, it's not for pre-development expenses, but it's really to help grow your organization. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you can use it for things like, you know, hiring people, um, uh, you know, maybe hiring attorneys and accountants to help you structure your your business in a way that is conducive to the, the properties you're developing, sort of a, a long-term goal of creating a wealth perhaps for you and your employees. Um, so it's really meant to help you uh, sustain and grow your organization from the organizational level uh, right. versus the project-based level. But we have a cohort, uh, you know, a couple of people from D.C. There are people from the West Coast. There are people from the Dallas area um, all come together and have programming once a month to talk about issues that are relevant to us. And we usually have a speaker, uh, an established developer comes and tells us about his, his or her business you know, speaks to the pain points of their organization, which is awesome. We get to ask questions of that developer. And then we get to work through issues um, amongst each other. You know, we might have an issue with our project that we'd like to share with our group and talk talk through it. Um, it's really an amazing experience, you know, to be in a room with that many, you know, 20 plus developers like yourself Mm -hmm. We have years of experience and that are on this uh, growth uh, trajectory. It's just, it's just amazing. And I'm so grateful for this opportunity. It has already seriously changed the trajectory of my company. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's actually great because, you know, real estate development is so hands-on. It's like, you got to focus on the project. So you can't focus on scaling the business that's or exactly putting right. resources to scale the business. So this is a great program for that. It really is. I mean, most of us are in a place where we need real support on the hiring side, right? Because mm -hmm. that overhead, you know, we don't have, you know, the liquidity of our majority counterparts, right? So even in this time we're in right now, for example, with the interest rate moves, right? I mean, lots of projects are in trouble. Mm -hmm. The difference is the majority companies can wait a year or two and hold their projects, right? They can pay the interest rate on whatever financing they're using to carry that project. Mm -hmm. They make enough money across the board. They have enough balance sheet that they can continue to pay their overhead for themselves and their staff while the economy adjusts. People of color can't do that. Right. All the gains that we've made since George Floyd, all of that's going to evaporate if municipalities, I would say, foundations, um, don't come to the table and help us get our projects to the finish line. I'm suffering right now on one of my projects. And honestly, you know, if I can't get that project done, if I can't get the municipalities to support me, my company is going to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And it just shouldn't be like that, right? I mean, we've made huge strides um, in the BIPOC development arena. And so, you know, you know, it, it's just, it continues to prove what our challenges are. This economy and trying to, right size it and adjust it and take the pressure off um you know th that's great for somebody who has millions of dollars in the bank that can carry right all of the bipoc developers out here who are this close to the finish line somebody's got to help them to the finish line yeah so, 
And I feel like, well, from my what I've seen, my limited experience, a lot of the uh, black and people of color developers kind of gravitate towards affordable housing, um, which it's kind of like a personal mission for them. But um, and then it's also a way to use public dollars. But those tax credit application fees, like you said, the holding costs for the land, the pre-development, all of that money you got to have up front before you get those tax credits. That's exactly right. I mean, that takes a lot, right? And how does a developer of color manage that? I mean, you know, in the last few years with the low interest rates, it was easier to bear and manage and it allowed uh, deals to get done, right? Because the cost of capital was so low, mm -hmm. you needed less, say, uh, a city subsidy or foundation grants, right, to help your projects get done. But again, just since January with the multiple interest rate moves, that's reducing the amount of money you can borrow. So mm -hmm. uh, my, my example is that when I started my project, this one project, I um, um, the project could, I, we could borrow $10 million. And right now that number is close to $8 million. So I've lost $2 mm -hmm. million with interest rates. So where does that $2 million come from? It's got to, you know what I mean? So, so it's, it's yeah. got to come somewhere. And so either I'm going to, either I'm going to, you know, pull chalks and like leave the project, abandon the project and lose money, mm -hmm. right? Or or hopefully some organization, foundation, uh, city agency steps up to help fill that gap to help me get to closing and then help me earn those fees that will sustain my company and then help it grow. And that's really what needs to happen right now because lots of people are putting pencils down, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I could and borrow- the cost of materials keeps going up. That's, that's not true. saying- I mean, That's adding to the gap. You're right. Because my project has a gap that's close to two and a half million. Actually, let me stop lying. It's three and a half million now because, <laughs> because of the interest rate move this week. Mm. So you're right. I mean, um, it's 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 really, I'm you know, I think most developers are struggling, but I would say the issue- with BIPOC developers is that we've just made significant gains and progress in the last couple of years in terms of getting the investment and the funding we need um, for our projects and for our enterprises. And so, you know, to be this close to really making something happen and then not having the support to, to, to actually get the project to closing is disheartening. So, you know, I hope the message is to all city folks, hopefully if there's some, you know, uh, uh, pretty girls in real estate that work for cities uh, mm -hmm. listening to this, mm -hmm. right? We need your voice, you know, inside the government. We need your voice inside these foundations to say, listen, let's help these BIPOC developers get their projects closed so they can grow their organizations um, because, you know, otherwise it's it's all for naught, really. Well, that's where organizations like Amazon have kind of come in and been able to make such an impact so quickly, because like you said, these municipalities are so slow and, and you can't necessarily blame them because, you know, they're suffering too. Like they're still trying to recover from the yeah. pandemic, um, yeah. you know, the decrease in tax revenue. Everybody's trying to cut back and trim the fat, yeah. but Amazon has come in and like flooded the market with billions of dollars in a year, let's say. Yeah, I mean they they um they are doing a great job. You know they're doing a great job on multiple fronts, right? They're sponsoring programs like the Housing Equity Accelerator Fellowship mm -hmm. um, to help BIPOC developers uh, do projects. They are investing, uh, and so you'll see. Yeah, last week 
Amazon did a press release of which I was included for a project I'm doing at the Capitol Heights Metro uh, with a partner, uh, Tony Wash of AWash and Associates. They did a press release on all of these sort of BIPOC agencies mm -hmm. and companies, right, that they're investing in. And so, yeah, if it wasn't for that uh, Amazon money, we couldn't do that project either. Uh, that's actually, that project is in the Opportunity Zone. Mm. And we had multiple Opportunity Zone investors that we talked to, and they wanted like 18, 20% returns. Mm. And that, that was a couple of years ago, right? And even <laughs> now, exactly, it's in, it's in the Opportunity Zone. You don't need 18% in the Opportunity Zone. Right. You need 10 or 12. But, you know, folks in real estate, that's what they do, right? If they're investing their money, they're maxing it out. Why put it in our project and get 12%, even though it's capital gains, when other people will do OZ deals, give them 20% plus the capital gains benefit. Anyway, our project couldn't afford it. And so if not for Amazon, we wouldn't be getting that project done either. And and really my partner who's providing all the financial guarantees and he's the one putting up all the pre-development capital, he would have been in a lot of trouble had it not been for Amazon uh, helping us get this deal done. Absolutely. Okay. Well, there's a lot we could talk about as far as the lending space, but I want to shift to your organization, Project Community Capital, because not only just from the real estate development side, it affects the people on the ground, the people that are living in these communities, the people that are actually working like on the construction and all that for these projects. So you are very passionate about kind of helping, you know, expand and increase their lives. So tell me about why you started that Project Community Capital. Yeah, so that I actually started kind of by accident also, right? Just like getting into the space. I've been working in development for a number of years, uh, mm -hmm. working with contractors and developers. You know, I was in my early years, obviously, as I noted, I wasn't doing my own deals, but I was building other people's projects. And I would see the general contractor uh, hire people that last two to three days or two to three weeks. And it was frustrating to me because when I was doing my development planning work in the community, I'd meet people all the time that were completely capable of working, but unemployed. So I just kept saying there's a disconnect between the contractors, right, and the community. Mm -hmm. And um, I felt it was, you know, my responsibility to do something about it. So on this project, the Nanny Helen, which I did with Tony Wash, I essentially created this platform. And uh, that time it wasn't called anything, right? But it was what I had proposed to do is to get the Section 3 um, um, group at the D.C. Housing Authority to send me resumes in advance of closing so I could interview them and see who was ready to work, mm -hmm. right? This was just my notion. If I could find the people in advance, then the contractors and, general, and the subcontractors would not be able to say they couldn't find anyone. Mm -hmm. I was going to make the job easy for them. Right, because they always try to say, oh, we wanted to hire minority contractors. We couldn't find them. Exactly. <laughs> and so, right, contractors as well as people. They say both mm -hmm. both sides. They can't find the minority contractors and they can't find the people. Mm -hmm. So actually, Nanny Helen, we did both. We got the minority contractors connected to the uh, GC and we got the people connected to the subcontractors. And we spent a lot of time begging the housing authority to give us the resumes in advance mm -hmm. and they wouldn't do it. And they, I mean, one person in particular, right? One person can just mm -hmm. kill your whole deal. You know that. So this person would not, would not. And every meeting we'd ask again. And as we got closer to closing, senior leadership started to show up to these meetings. So then I, I would ask the next person in line, can we get the resumes? They would say, no, the next person. And then finally there was a meeting where there was a senior enough person who heard this request and said, 
can you just Why send not? <laughs> so once I got the resumes and we screened a hundred people, mm-hmm. we were only, we only needed to hire 10 people. We wound up hiring 18 people and we lost one. So that mm-hmm. first project, we had a 94% retention rate for a section, you know, and it's for um, uh, between section three, which were really people that lived in Lincoln Heights, Richardson dwellings. We hired people also from Ward 7 and 8, and we hired a few uh, returning citizens. And so it was a powerful statement about what's possible, right? Mm-hmm. So the next project I was able to do that uh, was Beacon Center. We did the same practice. We actually developed software uh, so that the subcontractors could log onto our software and find people who were ready to work. Because the first time we did it, we just packaged up the resumes by division. The second time we did it, we did it through this software. And in that case, uh, we were we we got a ninety eight percent retention rate. We hired forty three people, and we only lost one person. Uh, also hired people from the community, hired people from Section Three. You know, people say people that work in public housing are lazy. We proved that wrong, right? Right. So our model, we know our model works, and so really we did that because as developers, um, we just thought it was important that not only we subcontractors, consultants benefit from public dollars, but the people in the communities where we're building this housing should also benefit economically. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that sounds like a business that you could scale, you know, outside of just working on it right now. I'm about to say, because section three is a regulation everywhere. Yeah. So, so I do have two, um, two contracts right now for uh, project uh, community capital, right? With, with with third parties. So we do this for our own projects. Mm-hmm. But to your point, um, we're working on Port Covington uh, with CBG Building Company, who realized also that they could use some help with hiring and MBE, WBE contracting. And, and, and actually CBG Building Company is like the sister to the development company I used to work for at Clark. Mm-hmm. And so- See, this is social capital, right? I used to work for them. And then essentially when they were trying to do this project, they said, who could help us get this project done that we trust, trusted relationships. Mm-hmm. And then, so they hired our firm to help them. And we've done amazing work there. We got a guy who was 12 years justice involved, two offenses. We got him a job at Benfield Electric, uh, a permanent job. And in two months, he was, uh, he was given the keys to the job site, offered an apprenticeship, and promoted to supervisor and now supervises six employees. Wow. So Project Community Capital not only works for just construction compliance, but also permanent permanent employment. Wow. Wow. Make an impact on both levels. Yay. And like I said, it's scalable. So you could take that model and do it from East Coast to West Coast. That's exactly right. That's what we're working on. I mean, that's what my um my doctorate, uh, basically the whole point of it uh, what they try to create is people, social innovators who can create scalable platforms. Mm-hmm. And so yes, being scalable is is everything. And I'm working on that. I'm glad you said that about your doctorate because I was going to ask you that next. Like <laughs> I don't see no, that many people in real estate development. Like after you, it's and it's people out here that are classically trained. They usually go get their MS read and then they stop there. Um, but you went all the way to doctorate, but it's not necessarily in real estate development. So tell right. me about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, once my daughter left to go to college, you know, I was like, I felt like I spent so much time with her and raising her. I sort of had a little, you know, void there, even though my husband was like, 
okay, we empty nesters now. What you doing? (laughs) I know. I was like, oh, but you know, I felt like um, professionally something was still missing. Right. And so um, I started looking around about, you know, in terms of um, the things I was passionate about. And I found this program at USC, Mm -hmm. which is basically a doctorate uh, in social innovation in the school of social work. And it's basically uh, trying to create a help uh, innovators create platforms, right, to meet one of the, or contribute to one of the grand challenges, one of the 12 grand challenges, which is now 13. When I entered school, it was 12, but based on George Floyd, uh, we were able to add a 13th grand challenge, which was eradicating racism. Mm -hmm. But I focused on reducing economic inequality. And so, um, and so that's what I'm working on through Project Community Capital. So I went to this program, basically, to expand uh, the work that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And that's when I uh, basically learned about the collective impact model, which is where we partner with other organizations that want to address the same challenges. So uh, so part of our platform, we partner with um, folks like Dress for Success. We partner with um, you know other nonprofits like NDC, Marshall Heights uh, Community Development Organization, and those folks are already in the community and they've been in the community for decades doing work, right? right? We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're not trying to do what they do. So we partner with them because what our strength is, is social capital. Mm-hmm. For one, we are the creators of jobs and our friends uh, control jobs, right? That's where social capital comes in. Right. I got, we got a woman a job. We met at Kenilworth where we're doing work. Kenilworth uh, Public Housing Development. We're doing work there. And we essentially sent, I sent the resume of uh, someone from the community to a friend of mine who's a managing director at a firm. He then sent the resume to his CFO. His CFO said, oh, we happen to be interviewing right now for a uh, office manager. So we'll interview her. They interview her. uh, The partners interview her. They did multiple interviews with her. And then they called us and said, well, you know, she's not quite experienced enough to do the office manager job but she's such a dynamic person and she has what we call hashtag RTA, which is reliability, trustworthiness, and ambition. Mm-hmm. That we're gonna create a job for her. So she had four jobs making $64,000 a year. Now she has one job making 67. Right, and so she's got more time, I'm sure. To take care of her child, cause she's mm-hmm. got a daughter. Mm-hmm. And so, so really, you know, uh, uh, pursuing the doctorate really just helped me a further sort of redesign project community capital. So now we have partnerships that help us when you're not ready to work, provide you know social services. Uh, we also created a nonprofit arm of our platform called Workforce, uh, I'm sorry, WFL Collective. Workforce Leverage is our database. WFL Collective is our nonprofit arm that partners with education and training uh, providers. Because once we get you a job, our goal is to help you onto a career path so you can get out of the affordable housing that we're building and into the middle class. Mm-hmm. So it really is a holistic approach to community development. We also do entrepreneurship acceleration. Um, and so we have we are about to start our boot camp in, in October where uh, folks come and uh, we have a curriculum, an online platform we train folks out of and at the end of the plat at the end of the course, you will get five to fifteen thousand dollars each for your business to help it help accelerate the growth. And we do that. It's called heightened hustle. We do that. Basically, lots of folks, lots of black folks, 
have businesses and they do it out of their homes. Or they're a solopreneur. Exactly. <laughs> so we're going to help them try to scale their businesses, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, and a lot of people figured out how to, how to make ends meet through COVID. Uh, we found so many people that created businesses out of their homes, right, through COVID. So we're going to help mm -hmm. those folks basically accelerate the growth by leveraging our social capital relationships, connecting them to uh, contracting opportunities because our friends buy their products, right? Mm -hmm. That's how that works. And um, help them give the give them the money to help buy, you know, supplies, um, and and hire staff to help them grow their businesses. So, so the point is that yes, I went to this doctorate program in order to to uh, learn how to scale my platform, uh, both through um, through practice because we're actually a practicing doctorate. So there are there are PhDs essentially that do research, right, and writing. Mm -hmm. Our doctoral program is really to create practitioners and right. to create against innovative platforms to impact, um, to create social impact. And so, uh, so the whole uh, intent was for me to be out here hustling, trying to help people from underserved and underestimated communities um, create economic empowerment. That's amazing. That's amazing. Because, uh, you know, we always talk about affordable housing and it could kind of become this like perpetual cycle of you being in it from generation to generation because you're getting that assistance, but you're not ever working towards being out of that. And that's only going to be learned through economic opportunity. Yeah, because part of it is that people don't see them, right? Mm -hmm. I'm saying there are so many people that are underestimated, like this woman that we just got this job, right? She had four jobs. She was underestimated. Yep. Now, and right now we connected her with a company who actually sees her value. And in fact, this is what's so profound that um, they had been, they, the previous person that was helping them do certain activities that, that they had to pay for. So they were um, sort of things in the office that they would um, send out to purchase, right? Like office supplies and, and materials and things. The former person used to do Instacart all the time to buy these things, right? Which got to be excessively expensive. Um, but the person that we got hired, she finds all kinds of ways to keep the cost down. So she doesn't mm -hmm. use Instacart anymore. She finds other ways to get the same product, but for a lower price. And what that demonstrates is being a single mom. Yeah, she's got a mentality of saving money. That's we got to exactly be efficient. Right. <laughs> and she's bringing that to this company. And they're like, yes, you're saving us money. But that's where diversity is so important. And that's why hiring people who are underestimated, it's important. They, they can become truly the most valuable employee you have. Exactly. And oftentimes, some of these people are, you know, in constant survival mode. So it's like they're constantly kind of got their head down, just doing what they need to do. Sometimes they need somebody to put their resume or put, you know, an opportunity in front of them for them to even notice that they can have something else. So that's exactly right. Yeah, it's really it's about um, not knowing. And that's, again, where social capital uh, comes is there's, there's the um, is a theory of the strength of weak ties. And so what it suggests is that, you know, people who aren't in your same social circle know about far more opportunities, 
right? Because you're usually hanging out with the same people. And yeah. if you're from an underserved community, the people that you're hanging out also don't have access to these kinds of opportunities. Right. So that's what we do. We go into neighborhoods that otherwise would not have access to these opportunities and bring them. And so they can learn about the possibilities. To your point, lots of folks are just grinding, looking for jobs. We're working with people in Maryland, um, some young men in Maryland. They are out here like every day trying to get a job and they just don't know where to find it. They just don't know how to connect to it. And we recently got a bunch of men um, jobs uh, who, who are part of our platform um, who have been looking for a long time. And again, it was because we called our friends mm -hmm. who, who are in charge of employment um, decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and we've gotten them many, many jobs just in the last month. It's just, you know, over a dozen people we got jobs in the last month. So the reality is, is especially for those of you who are listening, <laughs> um, if you have access to employers, high level people and organizations that are responsible for employment, um, please DM me on LinkedIn because we're always looking, seriously, we're always looking for mm -hmm. new relationships to help place people into employment. You know, it's all, it's a way to give back a, a phone call to one of your colleagues who is a senior vice president at a bank can change the trajectory of someone's life. Yep. And then for that person that's hiring, it makes you look good. You can, you know, exactly. check more diversity and inclusion. Exactly. That's the truth. That's the truth. That is the truth. Um, so we talked about social capital and that kind of segues into mentorship, which we talk a lot about on this show. And I'm very blessed and honored to call you a mentor. But can you tell me about some people that maybe were very pivotal in your career um, as far as being mentors for you? Well, so it's interesting because I, I don't really have any mentors, not in real estate. And, and it's funny because people ask me that a lot. And it's it's a shame. But, you know, there just aren't that many people mm -hmm. right certainly at my level or, or really it's really above right I need somebody with 40 years of experience mm -hmm. right to, at this point to be a mentor to me but when I was coming up I didn't have access to those you know somebody who might have had 15 years of real estate experience that was a certainly a, a BIPOC person mm -hmm. I do have one woman who actually was a client who has now become friends with her like more like family um, she was the she ran a global pension fund and so she's a beast in turn, and she worked for NASA uh, mm -hmm. on contracts. So she's highly intelligent. So I usually call her to pick her brain on business issues, general mm -hmm. business issues, because um, she's not really a real estate person, uh, but she does know accounting and finance from her experience. But then I will say in terms of mentors, I've had a handful of people make a huge impact on my life. Um, one was a man named Doug Sandor, who worked at, um, who was my boss's boss, essentially at my first real estate job. Mm -hmm. And I had a site, that first site that I showed up where my, the bulldozer was, um, we had some significant, uh, engineering problems, civil design problems. The site had a lot of, um, uh, a pooling of water. And this is my first job in real estate, but you know, when I went to the job site and there was just pools of water everywhere, I knew something was wrong. <laughs> Even though I hadn't built it before, I was like, "This ain't right." Right. Um, so then I basically tried to backcharge the engineer lots of money, um, and for months and months and months, I wouldn't pay their existing bill, mm. uh, which was, you know, which was not uh, insignificant. And um, and then the partner of the engineering firm called my boss's boss, Doug Sandor, and said and said, um, you know, she really needs to pay this bill, right? 
it's been months and she won't pay. Uh, my boss's boss says, sorry, I can't help you. That's Gina's project. Mm. So I gave you like, that autonomy and didn't. What? I mean, right, because this is a white man and I'm just in the game. And right, I'm a project manager. And he like, he like said, no, I'm not, you know, and that's huge because it's white man to white man. They're they're mm -hmm. basically the owners of each of their companies. Right. And so his expectation was, yeah, he could use his social capital to undo me. Mm -hmm. But my boss basically said, no, nah, she knows what she's doing. And right. so once he gave me that sort of, um, um, you know, once he gave me that credibility, because that's what it was, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, now I feel like I'm a superstar. Like now I'm untouchable. That really did do a lot for my career. Right. I honestly became a different person in real estate because of him. Because mm -hmm. he gave me the confidence to say, yeah, I'm not stupid. I know what I'm doing. This is appropriate behavior. And I am in charge of my own projects and my own destiny. Oh my God. He believed in me, right? Mm -hmm. He believed in me in a way that I had never seen a white person believe in me. Mm. So it takes allyship. Yes. You know, you can't, we can't, we're not out here trying to do this. We can't do it by ourselves. We don't control the economy. We don't control the money. If we don't have white people, that's just the truth in our space, looking out for us, supporting us, then it's going to be hard to make it happen. And that, that man basically made me think, yes, I'm in, I'm in the right, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right career and I'm doing the right thing. Absolutely. And I know now that you're really passionate about uh, working with, you know, young women, working with black people, like you're always willing to partner, always willing to, you know, give advice. So that's amazing because it's not that many people like you, like you said, when you were coming up. So why not make it easier for somebody else? I mean, th this is it. Like no one, no brown person offered to partner with me on deals, even though, you know, I'm really, I've been known for a long time as an expert in this space, mm -hmm. but you know, nobody was interested in partnering with me. And in fact, um, most of the times when RFPs came out, public RFPs, I didn't get any calls. Uh, and a few times that I did get calls, uh, the developer wanted me to do some menial tasks, like, um, like community, like the community outreach or the subsidy applications. Mm -hmm. And obviously I can build projects soup to nuts and I can run circles around a lot of these majority companies. Um, but they completely disrespected me, um, by asking me to do nothingness to be on their teams. I mean, the only I would say only group out here who actually treated me as an equal who I haven't done a deal with yet, but we've chased multiple deals with together are um, Hoffman and Associates. Mm -hmm. um, at every single, uh, we chased a couple of projects together twice. There were reasons why we wound up stepping out and not doing, not pursuing them. Um, we, we would qualify, but not pursue it to the end. Um, but they gave me mad respect. I wrote sections of the RFP. I was able to make comments on the numbers, uh, uh, comments on the design, you know, comments on the strategy. They wanted me at every single meeting and they wanted my input. Mm -hmm. Also a very rare thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so I've been fortunate to have a few white developers at least want to partner with me. The project I'm doing in, in Cleveland right now are some guys out of Texas who are partnered with me who are amazing. Uh, I'm the 51% owner and they allowed me to do that, you know, do the day-to-day -day work and they're not breathing down my neck or anything like that. So it's rare, certainly for a person of color to have these partnerships with majority developers when the minority developer actually wants to do the work. 
Mm -hmm. right? Lots of people approach me saying they want to give me an ownership interest, but they don't really want me to do anything. So I'm not interested in those partnerships, right? But what I've learned is that there's power in partnership if you can find a good one. And because no person of color had come to me to try to partner with me, um, I basically said, I'm going to be the one to do that. Mm -hmm. I depend on somebody else when I can do it myself. And so through the Capital Impact Equitable Development Initiative, you know, I put a call out to developers essentially to see if you want to partner with me, if there's deals that you can't do um, because people, um, uh, financing entities were kind of pursuing me to help me with my deals. And I figured why not leverage that into a partnership with somebody who might not have that opportunity. Right. So instead of doing it all for myself and being greedy and say, yes, I can get the money now. Let me just do it by myself. I basically, you know, asked other people to bring me their deals so I could do deals with them. So essentially someone did, right? So I just closed on a 110 unit property in August, which I'm sure you know well. And, um, but that was brought, you know, but but the first person who it was brought to was a was a, a, a younger, uh, less seasoned developer. Um, and that developer brought it to me and we formed a partnership and we're getting the project done. So now I'm in multiple deals with people, um, uh, younger, newer developers. And then the other thing to your point in terms of mentorship, I'm mentoring in the uh, Capital Impact Amazon-sponsored Housing Equity Accelerator Fellowship. Mm -hmm. I have two mentees there um, through Capital Impact's Equitable Development Initiative, right? I have a cohort that I mentor during the program that I still mentor, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, you're one of them. <laughs> um, and then I recently got um, uh, basically pulled in to do a ULI cohort mentorship. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm sponsoring a happy hour with, with all three of those cohorts here in October to get all of my mentees together to talk to each other, talk about the deals that you're doing. Maybe there's a way for you all to collaborate and support each other because we don't do enough of that. Absolutely. So I'm sponsoring that event um, you know, to help my mentees sort of stay together, talk, talk to each other, um, and hopefully do work together because you know, we as Black people don't collaborate enough. Um, but the other thing that happens all the time, in fact, I was out last night with a couple um, who were interested in learning my story and getting into, into development. Um, people DM me all the time, LinkedIn, and say, oh, you know, I'm seeing all the stuff about you as a developer. I'd love, you know, a couple of minutes of your time to talk about, you know, my interest in development or a project I'm working on. So, yes, I spend a lot of time on Zoom calls with newer, younger developers you know, trying to tell them about how the game works and mm -hmm. looking at their projects. I've, I've analyzed other people's models to tell them, you know, where the flaws are, what they need to do to, you know, to make the deals work. Uh, I've done a lot of that. I think it's important. I think, you know, I'm hopeful, you know, as I'm growing my company and becoming more successful, it really is my goal to stay accessible mm -hmm. because I did not have the same opportunity. And, you know, there, there are so, you know, you know, there are um, four times as many, four to five times as many black real estate executives, male rather, than there are female. Mm -hmm. So women are definitely my priority because it is so hard for us to, um, to be treated equally. Um, I've just had so many challenges, even on recent deals where um, people challenge every day my experience and my knowledge right? My expertise. And so, um, 
you know, we, we really struggle as black women, um, you know, in this space. Well, look, I'm so glad that you're, you know, who you are. I'm so glad that you're getting your flowers now, you know, after all these years of hard work, like now everybody knows who Dr. Gina Merritt is and it's only onward and upward from here. Yeah, like, it's like, yeah. now I'm finally, you know, opened up all the opportunities. Now I can really do some damage. <laughs> No, that's the truth. That's how I feel. It's like, I do pinch myself quite a bit these days. I'm like, this is really happening. Like people want to do business with me. People are willing to lend me real money to do mm -hmm. projects. People have my back. Uh, people are bringing me deals. And so, so all of that, I, like you said, I feel like I have, I have to give that energy back to uh, young BIPOC developers. I, I feel so blessed and so fortunate and, and I don't want to spend the next 10 years just making money for myself, although that's a nice thing. I'm, I'm playing catch up, really, mm -hmm. <laughs> compared to my male counterparts. But at the same time, you know, I'm going to give back every every minute I can um, to young people. Because, you know, when I go away from here, I want to be able to say not only did I help underserved people from the communities I work in, get jobs and, and help them become better entrepreneurs. But I want to be able to say even the professionals that are in this space. I supported them also. I want to support everybody in that mm -hmm. ecosystem. I think it's important. And, you know, that's definitely my personal mission um, for the next, you know, as long as I can do it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, all of that, you know, you're expanding your social capital by doing that. So it's all the money's going to be tenfold. Like, it's not like you're going to be cannibalizing opportunities by doing this. It's going to just make more opportunities for you. Yes, so. I, would, I would agree with that. Well, yeah, we could talk for like two hours all about what's going on with you, but I want to wrap this up so it's not too long. I want to move right. on to the last segment, which is the Fabulous Four. It's four questions I ask every guest. Um, so first off, what is your favorite book about real estate? Hmm. Well, interesting. My favorite book right now is a book that I just read, The Color of Law. Mm -hmm. And it is all about how the law has created unequal housing opportunities and um, also unequal economic opportunities. Mm -hmm. And by listening to all of these stories about how, um, you know, black neighborhoods were created, how uh, schools were moved from neighborhoods to, to help keep people in low income housing um, and, and um, creating a, a void in education, like, the law, you know, for years has mm -hmm. been set up to make our lives very, very difficult as people of color. And so once I read that, which was just recently, like a month ago, it's it's made me double down on my mission. Mm -hmm. I mean, I listened to those stories because I knew about FHA and, and the, the lack of um, financing for uh, Black neighborhoods, right? They wouldn't finance neighborhoods that that included black people or gave black people housing opportunities like I knew about all that but this store this story goes into such depth in a granular level about how the government has created um this society and all of the um sort of problems that people of color have in housing and employment yeah and it and it made me so friggin angry um, but I'm so happy I listened to it. And I think every real estate developer, every, anybody in real estate mm -hmm. should listen to this. If you can listen to it rather like audible, uh, certainly a way to, you know, we're always in the car. Um, so it makes it easy to read because 
you know, it is a challenging material. Listen to this book on Audible, The Color of Law. Yeah. It will it will really change. I mean, it's changed my life. I like I am working much harder. I was already working hard, but I'm working much harder for for black people now. Yeah, we got a long way to catch up still. We're making a lot of progress, but it's like we're still so far behind. So mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. So the second question is, um, what advice would you give to your younger self when you were just getting started out with your career? Um, uh, I would say don't let, um, don't let others spoil your joy. <laughs> um, really, because I would say for most of my life, I, you know, not having a mom when I was 13 years old, I really struggled to sort of find my happiness. And what made me happy really was education. Mm -hmm. um, I was luckily, you know, intelligent enough to do very well in high school and be in advanced placement classes. You know, I did well in college in the business school. Um, but people were, mm, I don't know, maybe envious of that. Uh, and and that harmed me a bit, right? It, it always sort of challenged my self-confidence, mm -hmm. right? The fact that, you know, you know, I would get some of this, you're not black enough thing, <laughs> you know, um, because I was, you know, because I always, smart. Did well, you know, <laughs> right, exactly. Because I always did well in school. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe I could have been further ahead in my career. Maybe I would have um, made some different choices, although obviously I wasn't supposed to. Um, but that, I think, confidence is so important to young people to mm -hmm. keep them on track right and I think there were many forks in the road um, and those forks were put there by people who had their own challenges and weren't happy with their own lives so that's it I would be like don't don't let others spoil your joy you have to embrace who you are and all of that and believe in it even when it's hard to do yeah and I think like the um, I guess the continuation of that, once you actually make it, you come successful, especially with black people, we have survivor's remorse. Like we feel guilty that we're doing well. And it's like, oh, we got to, you know, give back. We got to look out for everybody else who we left behind. Yeah, no, that's the thing. I mean, I mean, that's how I mean, I think that's why I did. I started Project Community Capital. I mean, it, it is important to me. I do feel like, right, those are the, that's the community I came from. I grew up in affordable housing. Mm hmm. So all my friends at home were black. All my friends in school were white because I just happened to be in those classes. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So now that I'm in the position I'm in, I'm like, I do feel remorse. I do wish I could help every single person, every single brown person on this planet achieve the best. And, you know, I'm I'm working on impacting as many people's lives as I can. But yes, I think that's a thing about black people. But I wouldn't want to take that away because we have to help ourselves. Right. We didn't create this society. It's not our fault that, you know, there's high unemployment in our neighborhoods. This system was created. And so it takes all of us to contribute to help people up and out. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So third question is what um, topic in real estate do you personally want to learn more about? Um, That's a good question. <laughs> um, I would say I would say raising a fund. Okay. And having my own fund, because, you know, specifically in affordable housing, you don't necessarily need it, um, right? Because, I mean, you need pre-development capital, and then you get tax credit equity. 
but um, I'm looking more and more at NOAA's, right? Naturally mm -hmm. occurring affordable housing projects. And those projects need equity, right? But those need equity that, you know, can't get 18 and 20%, right? get 10 and 12%. And so um, that's not something I've had to do before, raise my own fund. I've worked on institutional equity deals. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, that's my thing. So I, I, I'm, I'm in the, the mode for creating a fund. So anybody out there listening, who's in the space, who wants to figure out how to work together to start a fund, DM me on LinkedIn. I feel like that would be the natural next step for you because we didn't even talk about this, but you're a, like a, a avid political fundraiser. So raising a fund for deals should be- Right, should be, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> it's a kind of a different animal, but yes. So yeah, I'm hoping, you know, in the next 24 months, I can stand one up. That's the goal, we'll see. All right, cool. So last one is to give a shout out to another woman in real estate. Give a shout out to another woman in real estate. Um, I would say Sheila Johnson. All right. The uh, founder. Salamander. Of yes. And the one that just bought, I guess, Salamander DC, right? She bought the old um, Mandarin hotel. Mm -hmm. um, that lady is amazing. Like, what she had to deal with, like when building her her hotel out out in Virginia, right? And how people tried to block her and stop her from building that. And now it's the largest employer in, mm. in the town where her hotel is, right? She has created economic opportunity, not only for black folks, but, but for white folks, yep. you know? Um, and she is, she has such humility. Um, so she's an amazing person. And um, I actually did get to meet her once in person. Um, but yeah, I would love to do like, I would love to like host her for a fireside chat around real estate as part of one of these many conferences out here. <laughs> so yeah, I love, I, I just love what she's been able to do. And, you know, hopefully I can be a mini her one day. Well, you just spoke it into existence. I feel like <laughs> it's going to happen now, like in a couple months. <laughs>
All right. Yeah. I got to take that advice as well. Cause you can just constantly be running and doing and, you know, getting pulled in a million different directions, but exactly. you can't, can't be, be at your best. Exactly. <laughs> you can't be at yeah. your best unless you rest. That's right. And getting enough sleep on a daily basis too. That's another thing. So exactly. <laughs> Seven hours I try to get, but that's a rare occasion. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Well, Thank you, Gina. I really appreciate this. This was awesome. Like I said, we could have had, a, you know, gone on for on and on and on and on. So many things that we didn't even talk about, but the things that we did, it was amazing. I appreciate um, the opportunity. I appreciate you. I appreciate you for being you. So thank you so much for everything you do. Um, we'll close it out here. All right. Another episode of Pretty Girls Love Real Estate Podcast. Uh, Dr. Gina Merritt, she almost needs no introduction, but <laughs> she is. Thank you. All right. We'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you.